Amen. Thank you, Cindy. I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians, the letter of Paul to the Christians in Galatia. That's what we're studying this summer at the chapel, so I'm preaching through Galatians. And I titled this message, Testimony of a Terrorist. I don't know if that scared anybody. My wife was out of the country, and she had heard the testimony of a witch doctor this past uh, week. And so I said, well, we got a testimony of a terrorist. I never explained to her. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. That's really what Paul was. The definition of a terrorist is the use of, uh, the use of violence and threats to intimidate or coerce, especially for the political or, or religious purposes. So in the message today, you're going to figure out the Apostle Paul was a terrorist. He was the ISIS of his day. That was what Paul's life was like before Christ. So we're looking at testimonies, and Paul is going to unpack for us his testimony to the Galatians Christians for this reason. There were a group of people, predominantly called Judaizers, that, came, that were in the church that were saying, okay, you can come to faith in Christ, but if you really want to be right with God, you've got to add some things to the cross. You need to be circumcised. You need to obey the law. All of these kind of things. And what Paul is, is saying is, it's the cross. It's God's grace, and that's enough. You can't add anything to the cross. In fact, another one of his letters, he said, anything you add to the cross becomes an enemy of the cross. So when we look at Paul's testimony, I want you to think a little bit about your testimony. A testimony is simply your story. And testimony should have simply just really three parts. You tell people what your life was like before you came to Christ. You tell people about how you came to Christ and the events surrounding that opportunity to come to Christ. And then what's your life been like after that? One of the things that concerns me about Christian testimony sometimes is we spend 90% of our words on what our life was like before Christ and very little about what our life's been like after Christ. In fact, if you don't get anything else, I want you to get the point of Paul's testimony. And so I'm going to throw a curveball to Casey and read the last verse first of the passage. So verse 24 in the passage of Galatians, look at that with me. Galatians 1, 24. After all that he said and... Verse 24, they were glorifying God because of me. So at the end of our testimony, we ought to ask the question, who did that glorify? Did it glorify God or did it glorify me? If the spotlight is shining on you at the end of your testimony, you really haven't given glory to God. It's really been all about you. It's just been about what you were like, your past life. And so be careful that our testimonies bring glory to God. Paul has an introduction, and then he gets into what his life was like before Christ, what his life was like, and how he came to know Christ, and then what is his life. In fact, the majority of the passage is really what's happened since then. So let's, I'm going to just read the sections at, at a time. Instead of reading the whole passage, I'm going to read them as we come to it. So let's look first at a couple of verses in the introduction. Verse 11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, why is Paul having to start there? For this reason. Paul was being attacked, and Paul's gospel was being attacked by this group that had become a part of the church. Some of them may have been outside the church, but many of them were in the church. And the problem is, Paul wasn't there. Hadn't been there for a few years. And so word gets to him, and it troubles him, so he writes this letter, and he's having to remind them, of his testimony, and remind him that the gospel he's sharing is not as they have said that it is. It's not from man. It's not according to man. I would have you know, literally, I declare to you, I certify. I want you to know this with certainty. Paul's saying, listen up. 
I want you to know what I'm about to say with certainty, brethren. And that's cool that he still calls them brethren. Why? Because they're fellow followers of Christ. So some of the people he's writing this to were the very Judaizers that were in the church that had come to faith in Christ. But because of their tradition and their background, they were trying to drag all of that with them into their Christian faith. And so he said, this gospel preached by me. Interesting phrase. The word gospel means good news. The word preached here means announcing good news. So he's basically saying, this good news that I'm announcing is good news is not according to man. Now, what Paul had preached before that, back when he was known as Saul, was according to man. It was, it was really God's law, but he had studied under a rabbi. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was a guy that, that had been taught all the traditions of the Old Testament of the Jewish faith. And for the most part, there wasn't anything wrong with those. They were from God. But all of that should have pointed us to our need for a Savior. And so Paul says, listen, what I'm preaching to you now is not according to man. I wasn't taught it, but I received it through revelation. What, what happens to Paul in his testimony, we find out about his experience on the road to Damascus. Paul was not seeking Jesus. He wasn't seeking God. He thought he already had God. He was simply in error, and he was out persecuting Christians. He said, I didn't look for it. I received it. Literally, it was manifested. It appeared to me it was something unveiled as if unknown. He's targeting the Judaizers who had received their religious instruction from rabbinic traditions, and Paul had too. But this new good news, he didn't receive. Uh, he did receive. He didn't learn that from any man. Paul didn't take it. Sometimes I hear that in churches. When we, when we take the offering. Have you ever heard that? You don't really take the offering. Nobody comes down the aisle with a basket and a gun saying, saying give it over. We really ought to say we receive the offering. Same thing with communion. We're going to take communion. No, you're going to receive communion. You don't take God's grace. He gives it to you. You receive God's grace. And so Paul said, this is what I have received. He was given it. It was offered by God. God had peeled back the veil. And demonstrated himself to Paul. So that's an introduction then to get to his life before conversion. So Paul's kind of set up the story. And then he's reminding them of something they already know. They've heard this because he was with them a few years earlier. He helped start these churches in this region of Galatia that the letter's written to. So let's read the next couple of verses. Verses 13 and 14. For you've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries and my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral tradition. Paul, just in a couple of verses, reminds them. They've heard his testimony before. They've heard what he used to be like. If you look at the book of Acts, you get a little bit more detail of what Paul was like before that. But you've heard of my former manner of life. I used to persecute the church. The word persecute literally means to pursue, to put in rapid motion. What's happened in Jerusalem is this. As Christianity has been born in Jerusalem after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, persecution takes place. So what do a lot of the Christians do? They start fleeing. They start taking the gospel for one reason, to share it with the nations, but also just to escape persecution. 
So they flee to other regions, and Paul was one of those guys who chased after them. He put them in hot pursuit. He would go into synagogues in other cities and drag people back to Jerusalem to be tried and convicted, imprisoned, and at some point, and some of them, put to death. And listen to how he describes the way he persecuted the church. I persecuted the church of God. So who did the church belong to? Who does the church belong to now? It belongs to God. So check this out. Paul, who thought he was a follower of Yahweh God, finds himself as actually persecuting the very God he thought he was serving. What a dangerous position to find yourself in where you're battling against God. He says, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. Literally an overshooting, a throwing beyond. Paul's saying, listen, I was zealous for persecution. I was doing it better than any of my countrymen. I was advancing, he says. I tried to destroy it, literally. A term used of soldiers ravaging a city. He said, I tried to lay it to waste. Here's what Paul was trying to do. He was trying to extinguish the church. Paul wanted to stamp out Christianity, period. That's what his goal in life was before his conversion. That's his life before conversion. He says, I was advancing in Judaism. It's a term that means to drive forward or make progress. It's literally to chop ahead as if blazing a trail through the forest. You ever taken a machete and just kind of gone through the woods and just kind of cut everything in your way to blaze a trail that other people can follow? That's what Paul was doing. It's as if Paul had a machete and he was going after anything that called themselves Christians. He was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries and his countrymen, being more, check this phrase out, being more extremely zealous, more earnestly, more vehement. And what was he vehemently earnest about? His ancestral traditions. Paul was saying, this is the faith that my fathers have passed down to me, and so I'm trying to protect this. And what they had missed is the whole Old Testament had pointed to what? Had pointed to the cross. The law pointed to the need of a Savior. The Old Testament over 300 times mentions a Savior that is coming to fulfill the mission of God. That's what things like the Passover were. That was what things like Yom Kippur was pointing to. It was pointing to the fact that Jesus Christ would come and live a perfect, sinless life. Be arrested, tried, put to death in our place and pay the penalty for sin. And be raised from the dead on the third day. Let me just share one little passage from Acts. There's a lot of them. I've just picked two verses from Acts because I want you to get the sense of what Paul was up to. Acts 26, 10 and 11. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I look up many of the saints in prisons, not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That was who Paul was. He tried to force them to blaspheme. What does that mean? Paul said, if you don't recant Christ, if you don't deny Jesus, you're going to be drugged back to Jerusalem. The the least that's going to be done to you is you're going to be put in prison. And in some cases, they would be put to death. The scary thing about that is that's happening on planet Earth today. In parts of the world now, we see Christians lined up that are being beheaded for one reason, Jesus. And they won't recant. 
That is amazing to me, the, the, the grace of God at work in their life that gives them that kind of resolve, even in those moments, to say, I can't recant. I can't deny Jesus. Why? Because he's my Lord and Savior. What a testimony. And yet to really get the grace of, that Paul talks about in Galatians, you've got to understand where he came from. Can God save a member of ISIS? Yeah, he did it with Paul. So that's who Paul was before the cross, before he came to faith in Jesus Christ. So I ask you, Paul thought he was doing the right thing. But he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. So I don't want to answer this question out loud, but what was your life like? If you're a child of God, just take a little glance back and remember what you were like before faith in Christ. What has God saved you from? My friend Dave Busby, who's passed away now, one of the just a great preacher, said there are times we need to glance at our cesspool, but don't spend a lot of time focusing on that. We don't look back and become self-absorbed in our past, but every now and then we do need to remember, God has saved me from that. That's what I used to be like. It's not who I am anymore. And that's Paul. So look at what Paul says then about his conversion, verses 15 through 17. And I love this word. I preached on this at Easter. But... When God. Folks, if you're a child of God, that's part of your testimony right there. This is who I used to be like. (laughs) At Easter, I just focused on the fact that it says that Jesus Christ was crucified, placed in a tomb. A stone was rolled in front of it. The women had prepared spices. The women came asking who's going to roll the stone away. They came to find a dead Jesus. But God had caused an earthquake. But God had rolled the stone away. But God had raised Jesus from the dead. If you're a child of God, there's a but God in your life. This is what I used to be like. But. Look what God's done. Verse 14. Verse 15. But when God. There is no human explanation for Paul's 180 degree turnaround. But God had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to preach him among the Gentiles. He was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and, to Dam- and returned once more to Damascus. So Paul, in a nutshell, there's a whole lot more description over in the book of Acts, in the letter of Acts, but Paul gives a little bit of brevity here. But he says, but God, who set me apart from my mother's womb. You've got to understand that. God had a plan for Paul's life even when Paul was persecuting Christians from his mother's womb. God had a plan for Paul. And what was that plan? It was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Listen, if Paul had known that before his conversion, he'd have run from it. In fact, in a sense, he was running from it. But God was pleased to call me through his grace. And folks, the word grace means something you don't deserve. It means getting something you don't deserve. I try to share this often. Mercy means not receiving what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. What did Paul deserve? 
when Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? What, what could have Jesus done and been perfectly when it is right? He could have just said, you're gone. <laughs> you're going to become like the dust of the road you're walking on. You're obliterated. Nobody will ever hear of you again. But folks, that's what all of us deserve, right? The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. That's grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. God was pleased. There was nothing worthy in Paul for God's grace. He was zealously working against God. That's Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until Paul cleaned his act up. He didn't send a 10-step program down and say, Paul, you need to get with the program. He encountered Paul on the very road when Paul was fleeing and persecuting Christians. But he was pleased to reveal his son so that he might preach him among the Gentiles. The, the word of the gospel for the most part of the disciples up to this point was just going to Jews. It wasn't really going to the world like Paul took it to the world and others after him started sharing it with the nations. And he said, as soon as that was over, I didn't immediately go up and consult with the disciples. That's kind of what the Judaizers were saying. Paul's just saying what these men have told him to say. No, Paul says, I didn't go consult with anybody. He went and spent basically three years just learning from God through the Holy Spirit was teaching Paul, now understand, he knew a whole lot about God. Once the veil went down, the blinders come off, he starts reading the Old Testament with new understanding and understands, now I get it. And so Paul could stand in synagogues and preach Jesus because of what he had heard and understood because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. So that's Paul's conversion. But understand something, Paul's conversion came with a commission. He was pleased, God was pleased to save him so that he could preach the gospel to the nations. Well, guess what? Paul doesn't save anybody. Excuse me. God doesn't save anybody that he doesn't also have a ministry in mind for. And it may not be to become a full-time paid staff member of a church. It may not be to be a missionary to go to the far corners of the world. It may be. But if you're a Christian this morning, regardless of your age, if you've come to faith in Christ, God's got a plan for your life. He's got something for you to do. Same passage in Ephesians that we quote, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you're saved through faith. Not as a result of works that any man would boast. You know, we, we can't claim anything. But verse 10 says this. You're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. We don't do the good works so God will save us. We do the good works because he has saved us. So think about your own salvation experience a minute. If you're a child of God this morning, when was that time that you recognized a need for a Savior and you came to faith in Christ? Can you remember that? Can you remember what it was like? It may have been recently. It may have been a long time ago. How about your service? I call Christians that just occupy space in the church now, I call them pew potatoes. Somebody asked me one time, I said that in the chapel one Sunday years ago, and they came up and said, now you said perpetrators? I said, no, I said pew potatoes. We know what a couch potato is, right? Don't anybody raise your hand, but some of you have fathers at home that are couch potatoes. My kids would say that about me, except now I'm in a recliner. 
you think our brain is controlled in the remote control because we just sit there all the time. My son, my son Gabe still talks about the fact when he was younger, we had a TV that didn't have a remote control, so we had Gabe. Go change the channel. Turn up the volume. <laughs> That's why when your dad lays the remote control down and goes to the refrigerator, he just stands there sometimes. He, he can't remember what he wanted. It's because he left his brain at the recliner. But there's some Christians like that. You come to faith in Christ and you sit back. Let's see who's going to get it this week. No. God's called you to salvation to save you, but he's called you for a purpose. What is it? Paul's conversion came with a commission. But let's look at Paul's life after conversion. Let me read the rest of the passage, verse 18 and following. Then. Three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what am I writing to you? I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So Paul finally says after three years. So he's been tutored by the Holy Spirit for three years. He goes up to meet Cephas. And you're saying, who's Cephas? And why is he saying Cephas? <laughs> well, that's an Aramaic word. It's Cephas, but it's Peter. Okay? Poor Peter. We know him as Simon in the New Testament. We know him as Peter. Now we know him as Cephas. And he's referred that way in Acts and in Paul's writings. But he went to meet him, literally to become acquainted with him. Didn't come to be taught by Peter necessarily. The word literally means to visit with the purpose of getting to know someone. Peter was essentially one of the, one of the top leaders of the church in the first century. And so Paul, after three years from his conversion, went to meet with him. Stayed with him 15 days. Isn't that interesting? He tells him how long he stayed there. And he really didn't see any of the other apostles except he did see James, the Lord's brother who was a leader in the first century church, wrote the letter called James. And he takes this little parenthetical brief time out to say, now, what I'm writing to you, I assure to you, I'm not lying. <laughs> How many of you ever had to send an email that in the middle of the email you said, now, I want you to understand, I'm not lying. <laughs> well, I know this wasn't the case necessarily in Paul, but in you, maybe the reason you have to keep telling people that you're not lying is they don't trust you. When I was a kid, growing up in the youth group, there, there was a group of us. We kind of became like this Christian mafia. <laughs> and we had this phrase, if you were ever saying something you really meant the truth, you had to say, I cross my heart and hope to spit. And if you said that, then everybody knew, oh, he's telling the truth. I'm like, why didn't we just tell the truth all the time anyway? I don't know. I don't think Paul was known as a liar. But the reason he had to say, I'm not lying to you, is because what? He's not there. His letter's there. But there are people in the church that are going to stand up and say, he's lying. And that's why Paul's having to write the letter. There's people upsetting his children in the faith. And so just in case by about this point somebody wants to stand up, this letter's being read aloud in the church, somebody, I'm sure, one of these Judaizers is already thinking, I'm, I'm fixed to stand up and say he's lying. Paul says, parentheses, I assure you what I'm telling you I'm not lying about. And then he said, after seeing Peter and James, I went into other regions. And here's something interesting. I was still unknown by sight. People didn't know what Paul looked like. When he showed up at these churches, they didn't recognize him. But when they heard his name, 
They thought, this is the guy that used to persecute Christians. Which I would think initially, if you're somebody that you've heard about years of the Apostle Paul hounding believers and leaving Jerusalem with letters from the high priest, letters of passage and permission into these synagogues, what if you're sitting in church one day and somebody says, guess who's here? Paul. I'm thinking, I'm heading to lunch. Because I don't want to be a part of something that Paul is persecuting. But Paul is saying, no, they started coming to understand. This is the guy that used to persecute. How long has it been since he's persecuted Christians? Over three years. The word started spreading. We don't know what Paul looks like. They didn't have post offices with his picture up in it. But they had heard about Paul. Everybody knew Paul in the church. They were only hearing the one who had once persecuted. The ones who used to pursue Christians is now preaching the very gospel he tried his best to stamp out. Now, folks, you've got to stop for just a minute and think of the grace of God. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I've actually heard people. I've shared Christ with people that said, you don't know, preacher, how bad I've been. Well, you weren't as bad as the Apostle Paul. I don't care what you've done. If God can save the Apostle Paul, there's hope for the rest of us. God's grace is enough. And Paul said, they were glorifying God because of me. I want to close with just a few thoughts as I studied this passage this week. How do we live a life that glorifies God? How as a believer, if you've been a Christian for a day or two or a week or months or years, how are we going to live a life in the world that glorifies God? How does our testimony glorify God? And you know what? You've not only got a spoken testimony, you've got one that speaks louder than that. It's just the way you live your life. Because I promise you, you can stand up in front of people and share a testimony, but if your life doesn't back it up, guess which one they believe? People believe what they see more than they believe what they hear. So seven things, real quick. Get over your past. I talked about there's times we need to glance at the cesspool and remember what God saved us from so we appreciate his grace. Don't spend a lot of time looking there. But you know what Satan will try to do? He will constantly bring up your past. You're trying to serve God, and Satan will constantly throw in your face, oh, you're, you're, you're not worthy for God to, to save. Well, that's right. <laughs> you weren't worthy. I saw a T-shirt one time. I got a slide for you. The next time Satan reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Get over your past. Satan will constantly try to remind you, and you'll have these little ideas, I'm not worthy. Just tell Satan, Satan, you know what? I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. Where are you going? You're spending eternity in hell, Satan, separated from God. So remind him of his future. Number two, allow your past to remind you of the depth of God's grace. Just remember Paul. If you can look back at a past that you're not proud of, that's okay. Let, let that remind you of God's grace. You didn't deserve his salvation. That's what grace is all about. Also, use your past as a way of understanding lost people. I think some people are saved. They've been walking with Christ long enough that they really kind of quit rem remembering what lost people act like. We shouldn't be surprised that lost people act like lost people. And what I see that scares me a little bit more than that in the church is some people are happy with behavior modification. We know you're lost, just act like you're saved. 
And some people can put on a pretty good act at church. But if that's really not your life, if it's really not who you are, you need to come to faith in Christ. It is frustrating to try to live the Christian life and pretend to be like what everybody around you is acting like. But you don't have a relationship with Jesus. So use your past as a way of understanding lost people. Number four, live your life now in total dependence on God. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? It was a gift, grace. You've got to walk that way. You don't say to God, okay, God, thanks for the grace. I'll take it from here. <laughs> that don't work. Number five, pretending doesn't glorify God. You don't have to be perfect. In fact, it's okay for people to see how you handle messes, <laughs> how you handle sin, how you handle error. Don't live there. Don't try to justify it. But if you kind of think the only way I'm going to glorify God is if I live a life that's perfect, guess what? It won't happen. I'd love to say after you come to faith in Christ, you'll never be tempted again. Guess what? You'll be tempted more. I'd love to say after you come to faith in Christ, you'll never sin again. How's that working for you? You're forgiven. You don't have to pretend. And some people are real good at coming to church and putting on the church face. And if you ask them how they're doing, what do they say? Fine. I've often thought back to there were times when our kids were younger. We had a minivan. And we had four kids. It was all we could do to get them ready to go to church and load them up. And I love the fact our minivan only had one door. Now they have two doors. That's not a good idea. Because you put them in one side, they could go out the other. But you get them all in there, and probably on the way to church, somebody has screamed, somebody's cried, somebody shouted. But you pull into the parking lot, and you get out, and you put the face on, and people say, How you doing? Fine. And I know your kids are thinking, You weren't fine five minutes ago. So one way we glorify God is don't pretend. Number six, share the reason for the hope that is in you. Peter, First Peter. 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And then the last thing, here's how we glorify God. Don't claim the spotlight that belongs to God. Get out of the way. If you live the Christian life, who's getting credit for it? Become a reflector that gives all the glory that might come to you back to God. Let's pray together. With your eyes closed, just, just thinking for a minute, do you have a Christian testimony? Has there ever been a time in your life where you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Listen, your testimony may not like be like the Apostle Paul's. Very few are. That was truly unique. But your testimony is every bit as miraculous because God worked in your life to draw you to salvation. If you're here this morning and you say, you know, I don't think that's ever happened for me. Then I encourage you before this day's over, talk to somebody. I'll be standing at the back. If you're here with a youth group, talk to one of your youth leaders. Find somebody you trust their walk with Christ and just say, could you tell me how I can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that I'm a Christian? But most of you in here are believers. You would testify, yeah, I'm, I'm a child of God. Then how's your testimony? How's what the world's seeing just lived out through your life? What kind of service has God called and is calling you to? Father, I pray for men and women this morning. 
Thank you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul because it gives hope to the rest of us. Because, God, what it demonstrates is you could take somebody who was walking as far away from you as he could get, was pursuing Christians, was persecuting the church, and yet you reached down because you were pleased to do that. It wasn't that you were pleased with Paul. Is that it was your good pleasure to transform the life of this man into one who would serve you. So thank you for the hope we received from that. God, thank you for our testimony. God, I pray somebody this week would ask us a question that would allow us to give the reason for the hope that's in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.